You might find it helpful to have a red Bible on page 613 in front of you as we look at that psalm together. And you might have been reading it thinking, what? <laughs> it's a quirky little psalm, isn't it? Hidden away near the back of the Psalter. Uh, Just a few verses long, it uh, mentions some odd characters like Melchizedek. It it talks about two lords, and sometimes it's not clear which lord is being spoken of at various points. There's some weird images, dew from the morning's womb, drinking from a brook along the way. What are they talking about? We'll get to some of that. Uh, Just if you have a red Bible, uh, or maybe your own Bible even, you'll notice quite a lot of the footnotes at the bottom, which say things like, this Hebrew phrase is uncertain. It's not actually the Hebrew that's uncertain, it's the translators that are uncertain, just to clear that one up for you. Um, it's, a, it's an odd little psalm, quite a quirky thing. And, and as we read it, it, it is a bit confusing. As we begin, we are going to look at that psalm, we're going to walk through it together, see what it says and what it means in its original context, and then think about what it means for us uh, today. But as as we begin, I actually want to share a verse from Romans 16, which is uh, on the screen, uh, just so we don't have to flip around the the Bible too much. Um, At the end of his greatest letter, the Apostle Paul is praying a prayer, sort of summing up his message. And he says this, it's quite an interesting thing. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, which is in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. It's quite a a dense paragraph. But there's something there I just want to draw out, which is there is a mystery that has been hidden for long ages past, which with the coming of Jesus has now been revealed, and that mystery is made known through the prophetic writings. When he says that, he means the Old Testament. So let's just put that together for a moment. What Paul is saying there is, within the Old Testament scriptures, there is a secret, a mystery that was hidden, that was not understood until Jesus came. In other words, the Old Testament, even to God's people in the Old Testament, did not make complete sense. There were certainly lots in there that did make sense, but its secrets were not unlocked, its secrets were not made known clearly to everybody until Jesus came. And then what had been written about all those centuries before suddenly fell into place. And if you want a great example of what Paul's talking about, you you can't do much better than Psalm 110. Because this odd little psalm tucked away at the back of the Psalter. Now, if you just had your Old Testament with you, it's probably one of the psalms you'd kind of just skip over. You wouldn't think that much of it. It is an unusual uh, and very short Psalm, and yet, do you know, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Time and again, when the New Testament writers were looking to explain what happened, how the mystery of of God's promises were revealed, they went to Psalm 110. So I thought it might be quite a fun thing uh, this evening to walk through Psalm 110 in in two ways. Uh, First of all, I want us just to look at the text, and this is my first heading, which is Old Testament Mysteries. So we're just going to look at the text and actually what the the original text means. uh, And then we're going to just stack up why it would have been quite confusing. Why it wouldn't necessarily have made that much sense until Jesus came. Okay, 
So the first thing to note, Psalm 110, this is a psalm of David, uh, the great king of Israel, is writing the psalm. Okay, Uh, and uh, what does he say? The Lord says to my Lord. So straight away, we've got two characters. There's the Lord with all capitals. Now, that is the name of God, the, the name of the God of Israel who has made his covenant with his people. But then there's another Lord there. Not quite sure who that is. But it's somebody that David, the writer of the psalm, is willing to call Lord. And look what God, the God of the Old Testament, the creator God of the universe, says to this other Lord character. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What that is describing there is in the context of kingship and rule and battles and wars and that kind of thing... We're talking about an invincible alliance between God and this other Lord character. Uh, They are becoming allies. Uh, And when they are together, they are irresistible. An invincible uh, alliance. I've been reading a book about um, World War I and what happens around World War I and just afterwards. Uh, and it was interesting that at, at the time of World War I, Britain was the naval superpower. Or the, the British Empire was the naval superpower. But America was the economic up-and-coming giant. And the, the British Foreign Office sent cables and telegrams to America basically saying, look, we should be allies because if we are, we'll rule the table. You know, we'll, we'll run the show. Uh, you know, if we come together, we're going to be unstoppable. Well, think a bit like that, but just much, much bigger. This is an invincible uh, alliance, or if you don't like the the war metaphor, well, you could think about politics. Um, When you have a presidential election, the president will often try and pick a vice president who has different strengths to theirs, so together they form a dream ticket, an unstoppable pairing. Or maybe you think about football or, or, or some sport that you're interested in, when a great club then signs another world-beating player, and now they're going to be unstoppable. Any of those images or ideas might help you just see what's going on in verse 1. The Lord is saying, look, let's be allies, and together we will be unstoppable. You are going to be so powerful as you sit at my right hand, and you are enthroned above all other kings. Uh, And verse 2 carries on uh, the idea of the scepter being extended. You'll rule in the midst of your enemies. Your kingdom is going to grow and expand. That's what the scepter extending means. Your rule and your influence is going to grow and grow and grow. And yeah, people will oppose you, but it doesn't matter. They're not going to be able to stop your kingdom growing and growing and growing. Now, just worth noting as historical interest that the enemies being made a footstool for your feet. uh, There's a picture here. I think from, oh, it's a bit dark, sorry about that. Uh, But you can look it up uh, later. It's the bronze sphinx of Thutmose III. So it's one of these ancient Egyptian sort of uh, sphinx things. And he's sitting on top of nine bows. There's nine bows underneath. Those nine bows are symbols for the enemies of Egypt. So this idea of a king bringing out their enemies, making them kneel before them, and actually putting their feet upon them to rest as a sign that says, you're beaten. I have conquered you. You must submit to me. It's quite a common ancient world image. And again, the the idea is clear. Uh, God is saying to this other Lord character, um, your whole whole, um, uh, 
uh, all your enemies, everyone who might oppose you, has no chance of stopping your kingdom growing. They will be defeated, brought before you, and made subject to you. This is an invincible alliance. Uh, What makes this king so unstoppable? Well, partly his alliance with God. Verse 3, though, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Now, that, that phrase probably means these troops are getting up bright and early. Uh, These are arrayed in splendor. They are glorious-looking troops. They are powerful. And they get up straight away, early as they can, start of the day, because they can't wait to serve their king. They love their king. They're going to throw all their strength and all their energy behind this king. So wonderful and glorious is this king that his troops are just committed to him, 110%. I I read a, a book uh, not too long ago, called Start With Why. It's by Simon Sinek, who is a management consultant. And he says, uh, one thing that marks out truly great leaders is they, they tell you, they give you a vision. They tell you why, they be, why they're doing what they're doing. They tell you what they believe, not just, not just what they do. What is it that motivates them? And, and you can see it with people like Martin Luther King Jr. You can see it with the Wright brothers. You can see it with Steve Jobs. Uh, what they do is they get people on board with their business or their movement or whatever it is who are committed 110%. They give blood, sweat, and tears for whatever project it is because they see the vision of the leader. Well, it's saying something like this here. Uh, this Lord character who has made this alliance with God, he is going to be so beloved by his troops that they're going to give everything. To serve him. They're going to be willing, they're going to be up early in the morning like the dew on the ground, ready to serve, fresh and alert. Okay, so it's a glorious king, an invincible king with a a great army behind him. He he has a great personal relationship with God. The Lord has sworn, verse 4, and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's an unusual character, crops up in Genesis 14, uh, only for a few verses. Turns up, then disappears just as quickly. Don't know where he came from, don't know where he goes. But he's someone who's both a priest and a king, which was very unusual in the Old Testament and certainly unusual in Israel, because in Israel they had a separation of powers. Priests came from the tribe of Levi, kings came from the tribe of Judah. So you couldn't really be both at once, you see. So it it stopped anybody having too much power because the king was supposed to represent God to the people and the priest was to represent the people to God. So these were two key parts of the nation's relationship with God. And to put them both in the hands of the same person might just be dangerous because if someone has all that power, what happens if they go rogue? But here's somebody who God is willing to give that kind of power to. Somebody God completely trusts, has a close relationship with him, and is in the order of Melchizedek. And the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. This is an unusually special and wonderful person, a king and a priest, great relationship with God, made an alliance with him, an invincible alliance. His troops love him. And therefore, it's not a surprise, is it, that he is unstoppable. Um, verse 5, not quite sure who's at whose right hand in verse 5. It is slightly confusing, the Hebrew. Uh, the Lord is at your right hand. I, I think probably it is saying that God is at the right hand of this king. So that when he enters battle, you know, there's, there's times, aren't there, where a, a key moment in the battle, you might bring out your secret weapon. 
your, your extra stash of cavalry, your imperial guard, your, your best chariots might come out at the key moment to swing the battle. Well, at any key moment to swing the battle, who can this king bring out? God himself to come and sway the battle in his direction. He is an unstoppable king. He will crush other kings on the day of his wrath. Interestingly, Melchizedek uh, crops up in the uh, Genesis uh, right about the time when there are different sets of kings that are fighting against each other, and Abraham's fighting on one side of that. It's an interesting little echo. But this king, who is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, He is going to destroy his enemies. None can stand against him. He will judge the nations. Any who oppose him are doomed. They will just be dead on the floor. It's big, powerful victory imagery. It's kind of scary imagery for anybody who would uh, be against this king. But I guess that's the point of the psalm, isn't it? Uh, To say there is a king that God has chosen who it is utter foolishness to ever try and stand against. The only sane option is to be the group in verse 3, to be the willing troops who would be on his side, giving your energy to serve this king whose kingdom is going out and out and out. And then verse 7 is an image of rest and comfort. Having won a great victory with all his enemies defeated, he can just go to a brook very calmly And take a drink. You ever done something successful at the end of a a day? You've come come home, you've achieved something really good, and you get a glass of water or, I don't know, whatever whatever you might like to drink at the end of a long day, and you just take the first sip and you go, and there's just that sense of relaxation and rest. That's what verse 7 is getting at. Uh, This king has defeated his enemies, and he's at complete rest. It is a picture of a truly invincible, unstoppable king who is also a priest. Which leaves us with a few mysteries and puzzles. Because there never was an Old Testament king who was ever this great. Uh, One of the ones who you might think got closest to it would be David. But he wrote the psalm, so it's not talking about him, because he's talking about someone who's his lord. Solomon was David's son, but David never called Solomon lord, and it doesn't quite seem to fit, because it's not quite the total victory. So, so there's some puzzles here. It's clearly about a great king that God is going to bring up for his people, but it's not David. So who is it? There are some puzzles, some, some mysteries that abound here. I think I've got a few of them on the, on the next slide. Um, what king ever achieved this level of victory? Well, none of them in the Old Testament. That's mysterious. Who can be a priest and a king? That wasn't allowed under the Old Testament law. So who can do both those roles? And here's another little, little thing. Who can sit in heaven? It's a strange thing that um, in the ancient courts of kings around, around the world, uh, when you went into a royal courtroom, a royal throne room, uh, the king was allowed to sit. That was where he belonged, so he was there. But everyone else had to be on their feet because you had to be ready, if the king so ordered, to serve. Uh, you have to be ready to go. That's the way royal courtrooms, uh, royal throne rooms 
worked. And um, taking that idea on board, a lot of the rabbis uh, at the end of the Old Testament but before the New Testament uh, meditated and, and thought on this and thought upon the few times in the Old Testament where people are given a vision of God's throne room, places like Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah 6, we hear that the Lord is seated on the throne and all the angels are at attention. They're flying around. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. They're ready if God commands them to move. And Rabbi Akiva, who was quite an influential rabbi in that period, uh, meditating on how glorious and transcendent God was, said, yeah, only God sits in heaven. The angels, the servants of God, they have to be ready. They have to be on their feet. Only God sits in heaven. So who is this person in Psalm 110 verse 1 who the Lord says to him, you can sit at my right hand. You have the authority to sit in heaven with me as well. I think we can see why if you were an Old Testament believer... If you were an Israelite, maybe in 200 BC or 100 BC, and you got to Psalm 110, you might scratch your head and think, what's going on here? Who is this? It's none of our kings from the past. And so maybe it's not a surprise that Psalm 110 did, in some places, become a bit of an expectation of a greater king to come, a messiah. Which brings us to the New Testament fulfillment. As I said, it's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And here are some of the places uh, where it is quoted. Uh, If you've got a Bible, why don't you flick to uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, It's on page 1018. And the context is the teachers of the law have, Jesus has entered Jerusalem and there's a real buzz about him. People are wondering if he is the Messiah, the promised king to come. And the teachers of the law are a bit sniffy about this person who's not from Jerusalem and they they want to sort of question him and decide. And so they question him and question him and he he responds brilliantly and he silences them and, and shuts them up on three different occasions. And then, after they've had all their best goes at him, he turns the tables And you get to uh, chapter 12, verse 35. Uh, While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asks them, the teacher, he asked, no, he asked the crowd, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and what does he quote? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? Uh, What Jesus is pointing out here to the teachers of the law and the crowds uh, around is that the Messiah that God had promised is much greater than they were imagining. They were imagining another ruler like David who would establish the kingdom of Israel, maybe beat some of their enemies on the border. And Jesus says, no, the Messiah was always much greater than that. Always in God's plans and promises. David called him Lord. You're talking about no ordinary earthly king here. If you just flip forward uh, one page, actually, to 1021 in your red Bibles, uh, just a little bit later, Jesus is arrested and he's put on trial. You can find something very similar in Matthew and Luke, but we're in Mark, so we may as well go there. And as they 
question Jesus. Uh, and the, the, the movement behind Jesus has gained momentum. It's growing in pace. And the high priest stands up and he says to Jesus in verse 61, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, this isn't actually a quotation, but it is an allusion. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And the high priest tears his robes and says it's blasphemy. Why does he say it's blasphemy? Only God sits in heaven. So if Jesus claims he is going to ascend into heaven and be seated by God, that that is a claim to divine rule. The claim to be able to sit in heaven is, is a claim to be nothing less than God himself. Uh, This Messiah, who is from David's line, is very much greater than any other son of David. He is no one less than God the Son himself. Uh, A much greater vision of who Jesus is. Well, if you were to move forward, we won't go there because we'll be flicking through the Bible all all, um, all evening if we do. Uh, but as you move on, Jesus obviously dies. He is sentenced to death. He rises again. He teaches his disciples. And then he does ascend to take his place on heaven's throne. And the apostles go out and they're told to proclaim the victory of this invincible king who they tried to put to death and it didn't work because he came back. And the first sermon... When the gospel's going forward on the day of Pentecost, where does Peter quote from? Psalm 110. This has been fulfilled. This unusual psalm, which was mysterious, Jesus fulfills it. He is now enthroned in heaven. He is out of your reach, teachers of the law. He is out of your reach, Caesar. He is the invincible king who has made an eternal alliance with God his Father And they are unstoppable. The apostles saw that. They knew that. They believed that. That, I guess, is what gave them the courage and the boldness to go out and declare in every city, Jesus is Lord. He sits on heaven's throne and none can stand against this invincible king. But not only can none stand against him, Uh, He's not only the invincible king, he's also the perfect priest. And in the book of Hebrews, uh, there's quite a lot of Psalm 110 in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, it it quotes verse 1 again, and uh, it talks about Jesus' superiority to the angels and how he is ruling and reigning in heaven. But then in chapters 5 to 9, it it zeroes in on verse 4 and that odd little idea of being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. See, because... The Bible's clear, we all need a priest. We might not think about priests very much. It's a bit of an unusual thing, isn't it, to think about. It's not a very modern uh, idea of the world to have priests, I guess, for most of us. But in the Bible's terms, the priest is the person who can make you acceptable to God. Uh, The priest is the person who can act as a bridge between you and God so that you can have a relationship with God. So everybody in the ancient world knew they needed a priest. The question was, which one? See, you don't want a priest who is unrighteous because they're not going to be able to link you to God if they're not walking with God. You don't want a priest who is weak uh, or going to die or leave you uh, because if you do, then you're scuppered again. You've got to find another one. 
The perfect priest is one who lives forever. And Melchizedek, this priest king from the Old Testament who turns up out of nowhere then disappears, the scholars of the Old Testament times, they saw in him a symbol of the kind of priest we needed, a priest who is eternal, a priest who doesn't die, because Melchizedek doesn't die in the Old Testament. We don't hear anything about his death. A priest who is, is greater than all other priests. Even Abraham uh, gives Melchizedek 10% of the plunder because he sees in him someone even greater than himself, great father Abraham. And Hebrews makes a lot of that and says, don't you see, Jesus is that priest. He is the one who can make us right before God who can make us acceptable, who can make us clean, who can bring us into God's presence without fear. In Hebrews it says God is a consuming fire. So how can sinful people stand before him? We need a priest to make us clean and ready for his presence. And and Hebrews says we have such a priest. His name is Jesus. Do you see how they saw in Psalm 110 a fulfillment of God's promises? to send them a king to rule them, to send them a priest to make them clean. And so for us, I guess, Psalm 110 acts acts as a caution. Uh, Make sure you are on the side of this king. You don't want to be his enemy. He's invincible. And also, not only get on the right side of him, but do you see that you need him? You need a priest. You need somebody who can make you acceptable before God. And Jesus is the perfect priest who can do that now and forever because he is ever alive in heaven to intercede for us. A perfect priest, an invincible king. And actually, at the same time, Jesus is a prophet. Why is he a prophet? He's a prophet because he brings God's word to us and makes it clear. Psalm 110 is this odd psalm tucked away at the back of the the book of Psalms and very confusing and full of mysteries. And as soon as Jesus is brought into view, it suddenly makes sense where it didn't before. Jesus is the one who brings God's word to us and makes it make sense. In the Puritan days, in the 16th, 17th century, um, they talked about needing to understand that Christ, Jesus, was our mediator. The mediator, the one who stands between us and God. And they thought about it under those three headings, prophet, priest, king. They say, we need a prophet because by nature we're ignorant of God, so we need someone to teach us how to know and love God. Uh, We need a priest because we're sinful and we're not acceptable to God by ourselves, so we need someone who can make us clean by sacrifice. And that's what Jesus does. And we need a king because by ourselves we're weak and we need someone to lead us and rule us and defeat our enemies, sin and death and hell. And Jesus is all three. He is our perfect, glorious mediator, an all-sufficient saviour. He can meet every single need that we have. In a moment, we are going to remember that in communion. That's what we're remembering. The work of our king who has defeated our enemies. The work of our priest who has sacrificed to wash away sin. 
uh, the work of our, our prophet who has revealed God to us. As we move into 2024, I don't know how you're feeling. Maybe you're excited. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're worried. Maybe you're timid. But I'll tell you this. If you walk into 2024 with this mediator, oh, it can renew your confidence. It can give you a deeper trust. It can give you an ability to walk and know that you can ultimately handle anything that comes your way. Because nothing can take you down eternally if you have this mediator ever living to intercede your perfect priest your invincible king if you've got him if you're in his side if you're if you're one of his willing troops the victory is assured and your right standing before god is assured and i don't know about you but I look forward to 2024, and yeah, there's lots of things that concern me. There's lots of things that worry me. There's lots of things that could cause me to be fearful. But I know if I go with Jesus as my mediator, that can give me a confidence and a courage to face whatever may come. So as we share communion in just a moment, maybe reflect again on what a glorious thing it is that Jesus is our mediator. What an amazing thing it is he has done for us as priest sacrificing, as king leading, as prophet revealing. And come with thankful hearts to his table. If he's not your mediator right now, then don't take the meal. But but sit where you are, reflect on what you've heard, reflect on the songs, reflect on the music that we'll be playing. And maybe just ask yourself, wouldn't it be better... (laughs) If he was my mediator. I'm going to pray. And then I think I'm handing back to the band. Who are going to lead us in song. Father thank you. That your word is rich and deep and coherent. It makes sense. But it only makes sense with Jesus as the key that unlocks. The mysteries of the Old Testament. And thank you that the Bible points to him, to glorify him, to to lift him up in our eyes. And as we come to the table in a moment, may he be lifted up in our eyes and in our hearts. Because we need him. He is our perfect mediator who can restore us, refresh us, strengthen us, protect us, guard us, guide us, help us. And as we've heard from you tonight in Psalm 110, may our hearts be lifted up with thanksgiving and may we be renewed in our trust of him and may your spirit strengthen us to go out and be willing troops willing to serve this glorious one and it's in his name that we pray amen